0: Can everybody pull out the wind hover again? Doctor? you, i a copying. I pressed the red one to start record, right? The top one. No. Um, we already did this last week and I'm not gonna do, this will be the only time I'll do this as we go forward. I'm doing this, because we just started <coughs> as a way of reinforcing what we did, particularly for those of you who are newcomers who have not done this before. Um, be, because I know from my own experiences, and I'm sure it's true for you, that the first time you read a work of literature or the first time you hear a poem, it's a little bit strange and probably not easy to understand. But the more you look at it, the more you go back over it, the more you see. So. The Wind Hover is a pretty straightforward poem, I think, but it's, there's a lot going on in it. So I'm just going to read it again. Just remember, Hopkins went out for an early morning walk. It was dawn. And he looked up and saw this wind hover for a moment, just catch the wind. Um, the sun was rising. It was sunrise. He associates that act. I mean, think about it because they're united, right? The bird wouldn't be there probably in dark. The sun brought him out, he's there, he hovers with the, rise, the rising of the sun and he associates the two of them and he sees the glory in this bird and he associates it with the Dauphin, the prince heir, the prince to the um, throne in France, right? And if you look at the imagery, the wimpling wing, the wimple of a nun, the sister, you know, the. Um, so there's this beautiful religious imagery describing the bird and giving some sense of qualities to the bird that I'm assuming most of us wouldn't see. That's what poets can do. So he watches the bird and then sees it hover and uh, brings it home and then writes this sonnet. It's an Italian sonnet with an octave and a sestet eight line six with a rhyme scheme and describes it. And remember, if you read it, you you can hear the onomatopoeia, the sweep of the bird. You get a feel for the, the movement of the bird through the skies. And then he describes all of these powers gathering and that the rush of that line, as it moves forward, stops in the first line. If you know anything about poetry, you know how rare it is for a movement to stop in the first foot, the first measure of a line. If you want to go forward, That's not an accident, that's that's a sign of a mastery of of a great poet. The whole movement speeds forward and then stops abruptly because that's the moment of buckling. And remember, buckle has two meanings to bring together and to be crushed. And then he reflects on it, you know, and he sees the beauty of it and the work that a farmer does. He says, there's no wonder, this is ordinary, it's all around us. It's there in the dirt that gets turned over, the shine that it produces, and it's there when a fire dies out. So in everything in nature, um, things are being transformed and, and in, in some ways, appropriately, they, have, they reflect the Creator, the Word, um, in both in their living and in their dying, because the Word did both. He is life itself, went to a cross and died. So, he shows that, and (coughs) in Supernatural Love, the poem, the new poem tonight, today, sorry. Um, We've got a a woman, older, looking back (coughs) at a time when she was four years old, and she describes this situation, this event that took place involving her dad. She was four years old, she's um, using that needle point to, to pick out a sampler. For the word beloved. And her father's aware that she's fascinated with the word carnations and he can't explain it. He's a scholarly man and he does what scholarly men do. God, this is so the, the ironies in this poem are wonderful. He goes to a dictionary, as if the dictionary could explain something. While he's looking up the meaning and, and he, he goes to the English and he goes to the French. And it's interesting because the French has two different meanings. And both of them apply in the poem. Okay. While he's doing it, she pricks her finger and she cries out, Daddy Daddy. Now, just I'm not going to go over it more than that. Gertrude Schnackenberg, a contemporary American poet, amazing to me what she did here. But while you're hearing it, think <coughs> about all, all of the things that go back to the old Test or the, um, the New Testament with Christ. And Paul's letters, because if you look at it that way, the poem's like a palimpsest. A palimpsest is a text written over another text. It was a technique of the ancient world. Think of it as a palimpsest, that what happens to this little girl and her father overlays the crucifixion. So what we're seeing is what happens in the poem is that, what is that she participates in the crucifixion And you hear it, the word beloved, so often the introductory word to Paul's letters, right? He starts by going beloved. The use of the word tomb, associated with the Father's life. And I think one of the most important things, notice that when we go through this, there's almost not a thing in in what happens, as I've read it, I I, I haven't looked at it closely in a long time, there isn't a thing in the poem that doesn't speak. When the father goes to the dictionary, a voice comes off the page. The, the scissors speak. Um, the blood oozes, speaks. Why I, odors have a voice. I'm missing something. Kind um, of just oh, oh. And the needle, the association of the needle with the nails on the cross—you know that that that, um, that made what happened <coughs> one with their own flesh. <coughs> now remember the the word carnation <coughs> is important because it's from carnation that we get the word incarnation. The word carnation means pink, and it means flesh in. French, it means something different, and pay attention because there are two meanings that deepen what's going on here from that French meaning of the word. Everything in the poem speaks, so you can't read it without being made aware of a logos, a logos in the world. Christ made the world. If he did, we would expect to find him everywhere, everywhere. We under a scientific regime. We think that things are are um, inert, dumb things. You know, um, if we thought about it at all, and I think most good scientists do, the world the world is full of intelligibility. Everything means. Everything means. In that sense, everything speaks. Okay. So. And last thing. Um, This is nowhere present, but this is a woman looking back at her life when she was four, her childhood when she was four. It seems to me one of the things that's going on here that she couldn't have known as a four-year-old is that this is a moment of her calling. This is the calling of a poet, that what happens in this moment shows a young girl so fascinated with words that they tell. And, and think of it, because I don't think this is true for most of us, you know, but there's some men and women, was boy- who have this sensitivity, this special sensitivity when they're really young, and things happen, and ordinary ways of looking at children will not explain it. It's one of the reasons I hate when we put kids on, you know, we categorize them everywhere, we stick them on a needle in stages and things, you know, science has so encouraged that. There's very often a lot going on that we don't understand, always, always, with each other, with kids. I think what's happening is that um, this is an important moment because we see a young child having such a fascination for words, intuitively experiencing something her father does not understand, that everything speaks, everything means. And it's only when you have words to say that that you can see it because without words, we wouldn't see it. So this is, um, I think it's a moment when a child (coughs) is being given a calling, even if she doesn't understand it. (coughs) Okay, Gerard Manley Hopkins, The window. I caught this morning, morning's minion, kingdom of daylights, dauphin, dappled dawn-drawn falcon in his riding of the rolling level underneath him steady air, and striding high there, how he rung upon the rein of a wimpling wing in his ecstasy. Then off, off forth on swing as a skate's heel sweeps smooth on a bow bend, the hurl and gliding rebuff the big wind. My heart in hiding stirred for a bird, the achieve of, the mastery of the thing. Notice that the bird rebuffed the wind. What an extraordinary thing that is. <coughs> Brute beauty and valor and a- act, O air, pride, plume, here buckle. And the fire that breaks from thee, then a billion times told lovelier, more dangerous, O my chevalier. No wonder of it, sheer plod makes plow down shine, and blue bleak embers, O my dear, fall, gall themselves, and gash gold vermilion. Notice the uh, the compound modifier <laughs> dappled dawn drawn how that um collection of words functions as a modifier the dappled drawn the dappled dawn drawn falcon all that stuff has an affinity with him he draws it to him the dappledness the dawn they're all drawn to him the, what he's doing with language fucker i mean uh first cut that was a slip Hopkins was an extraordinary innovator. I mean, we, he realized that the English language was dying, truly dying, and, and to answer it, he went back, actually, to old England or old, um, Anglo-Saxon poetry. The, the, the heavy alliteration belongs to, when we do Beowulf, when we do it after this, you'll hear it in Beowulf, that alliterative line where you do boom, 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 words alliterating. I caught this morning, morning's minion, kingdom of daylots, daflon, the dolphin, dappled dawn, you can hear the consonants, right, alliterating. Um, <coughs> extraordinary things he did, wonderful poet. <coughs> okay, Gertrude schneckenberger Schnakenberger, supernatural love. My father at the dictionary stand touches the page fully understand the lamplit answer, tilting in his hand his slowly scanning magnifying lens, a blurry glistening circle he suspends above the word carnation. Then he bends so near his eyes are magnified and blurred one finger on the miniature word as if he touched a single key and heard a distant plucked infinitesimal string, the obligation due to everything it's smaller than the universe. So we get this thing, these words coming off the page. I bring my sewing needle close enough that I can watch my father through the needle's eye, as through a lens ground for a butterfly, who peers down flower hallways towards a room shadowed and fathomed as this study's gloom, whereas a scholar bends above a tomb to read what's buried there. He bends to pour over the Latin blossom. I'm four. I spill my pins and needles on the floor, trying to stitch beloved, X by X. My dangerous bright needle's point connects myself illiterate to this perfect text I cannot read. My father puzzles why it is my habit to identify carnations as Christ's flowers, knowing I can give no explanation but, cause... Word roots blossom in speechless messages the way the thread behind my sampler does, where following each X I awkward move my needle through the word, whose root is love. He reads, a pink variety of clove, carnatio, the Latin meaning flesh, as if the bud's essential oil brush cries fragrance through the room. The iron fresh odor carnations have floats up to me, a drifted secret, bitter ecstasy. The stems squeak in my scissors, child. It's me. He turns the page to clove and reads aloud, "The clove, a spice dried from a flower bud." And twice, as if he hasn't understood, he reads from the French for clou, meaning a nail. He gazes motionless, meaning a nail. The incarnation blossoms flesh and nail. I twist my threads like stems into a knot and smooth beloved, but my needle caught within the threads, thy blood so dearly bought. The needle strikes my finger to the bone, I lift my hand, it is myself I've sewn, the flesh laid bare, the threads of blood my own. I lift my hand in startled agony, call upon his name, Daddy, Daddy. My father's hand touches the injury as lightly as he touched the page before where incarnation bloomed from roots that bore the flowers I called Christ's when I was four. God, just amazing. Don't anybody ever tell me that poetry is what People who don't take seriously having a business do for leisure. <laughs> By the way, that's Nathaniel Hawthorne's great criticism in the opening of. Um, and it's been, the, it's been the take. All poets know this. I mean, the poets who read work out of a tradition. Most people want their daughters and sons to go on and do something practical and make money. So poets have always been looked down on. <laughs> Hawthorne speaks to that in the opening of the Sparrow Letter. Poets always give us a wisdom the world doesn't know. I mean, the really great ones, the really great ones. Okay. (sighs) Okay. I'm going to try to do a really quick review of what we did last week and hopefully we'll get to Milton. I didn't make it on Monday night, so don't have a lot of great expectations here. I'm going to work really hard to get to him tonight, but I mean this morning. Um, just as a, a very general overview kind of statement, remember that I said that if you put history together, when we look back at the pagan Christian world, it, um, it's a God-oriented world. The pagans believe in God. Um, so obviously, so do the Christians. So we call this a theocentric world. The The view of man was high. I asked you that question last week, didn't I? What are our beginnings high and low? I've done that a number of times. I did it with you guys here last week, didn't I? Our beginnings in the ancient world are high. Men are descendants of the gods in this strange procession that takes place from... The gods, the titans, you know, as they go down until we get to humans. All of the heroes in the ancient epics are descendants of God. Achilles, so is Odysseus, so is Aeneas. That partly explains their nobility, that they can do such extraordinary things. So the ancient world had um, an, an idea of man that was high. There was something in man that was noble because he shared something with the gods had something dividing him. All the ancient pagan philosophers um, shared that view. Both Plato and Aristotle knew that there was some transcendent element in the human soul. Aristotle said, "If if we give man over to just his animal nature, we consign him to a misery. That he will spend his life in misery because there's something transcendent. Um, Those of you who've been with me for a while, you know when we've done the, the, when I've talked about Plato's Republic, that Plato sees the soul as having a transcendent element. If man doesn't look towards the gods to help him, he's lost. Remember Socrates um, was condemned because he went around asking people questions. He was called the wisest man in the world at that time and he said his wisdom if he had, if he was wisdom, if the gods were true in saying that, because that was reputedly what was said, if the gods were true, it was only because he was aware of what he didn't know. So everything he did was to try to be open to learn, and he knew most of all he had to be open to the gods. And the great irony is in the apology, Plato's apology. When the when the court convicts him, they convict God, they convict him of being impious, of impiety. Um, he, even though he spent his life trying to be open to the gods. So so the pagans have this sense of uh, something sacred to the human soul. Christ comes into the world, you know, here, and makes that explicit, obvious, because he brings the divine nature to our human nature. It makes it clear. And then he goes back inviting us to come to him. Um, I'm going to come to this word that I, it's Theosis, I'll I'll put it on the board shortly. The church fathers used this word called theosis. Theosis. Man gradually becoming God. The ancient fathers used to say, God came down and became a man so that we as humans could return to become gods. But in bringing His divine nature into, into our human nature, He called us to something higher. So there was this sacramental aspect to the Christian Middle Ages. In the modern world, there's a radical turn from that. and We would <coughs> call this an anthropocentric, a man-centered world. And what you see happening here, particularly in the Reformation, because that's where our focus has been, um, was last week and it will be today. Um, that we can we can watch a rationalizing take place, a, a downplaying, a degrading. That something holy um, is is removed from the way that we look at man, and man becomes a shrunken creature. We know um, that the um, attitude of the sciences is that man's beginnings are low. We either came out of a black hole or apes or. So our way of looking at each other is radically changing. In some ways, it's, it's the very opposite of the way that we looked at ourselves in the pagan Christian world. So a radical change has taken place, and it, 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 it's affected our reading. We've talked about it. Those of you who've been in the littus Prophecy course, you've seen it. <clears throat> we had a wonderful image of it in that story by Flannery O'Connor, those of you who were here. Um, the heart of the park, when Enoch Um, this guy's following Enoch, I can't remember what draws him to the museum but he goes to this museum and he looks at this cage and what he finds inside this cage is a shrunken pygmy it's really an image of what man has become in the modern world Um, so something has taken place that radically changes the way that we look at each other Um, and a number of these things take place in the Reformation so I think it's this is a safe generalization to say up until the 15th century nature was good was full of intelligibility the logos was present we can see it you know in lots of the poets, if you go back to the ancient poets you can see it too but in the Reformation we're left with these views that, that um, after the fall, man is depraved, and so is nature. One of the consequences of the fall was that everything became corrupted. So a darkened, very very darkened view enters the world in modernity with the Reformation. And and those of you who did uh, Moby Dick when we did that together, you see it so clearly. Um, up until. 15th, 16th century, Mo- Mo- uh, Melville's writing in the 19th century. Nature's good. Nature's good. In Moby Dick, Ahab is struggling with this question of evil in the universe. How-, how could this creature have taken off my leg and in an effort to answer that question he has to go to ultimate metaphysical dimensions. And you know from that book he says, "What." Is there this malice, this evil, malicious thing he wants to strike through the the mask, the mask of appearances of nature, to get through to it because there seems to be some evil. One of the ways in which that's shown in Moby Dick is according to the Calvinist doctrines, some people are predestined to damn when they enter the world. Where did that evil come from? For, For God to create an evil creature, right, he's predestined he's not good, he's predestined to be damned, suggests God has some evil in himself. Melville wants to, Ahab wants to strike through that mask and get to it. So the modern world, one of the qualities of the modern world, and you know it, I mean, I, I'm shocked, we, I watch a lot of movies, we watch, or some, less and less, but you know, if you know anything about what comes out of um, Blockbuster or, or um, Netflix, Probably a good 75% of the movies that come out weekly are horror films. Horror. We, we, we have this view that there is this horror in the world. Stephen King. There's this evil in That's a Manichaean view. There's this inherent evil in things. It's a view very typical of the modern world. It's one of the ones we live under, that we grew up under. We talked about various images of the city. and Let me just quickly remind you what they were. Remember that the, the city comes into existence after Cain is exiled. God sends him into exile after he murders Abel. His son, Enoch, founds the first city. If you go back and read scripture, you'll find it in scripture. He's the founder of the first city. So the city comes into an existence in an effort to be self-sufficient, to live without God. And we see, we've seen that in the image of the city in all of literature, we can go back to Plato and Aristotle and Sophocles and um, Shakespeare was keenly aware of it, so was Dante, so was Milton. You couldn't think about man without thinking about the city. Um, the city has always been paradoxical. In, in man's efforts to be self-sufficient, he does extraordinary things. He can build the twin powers. A pyramid, the Great Wall of China, the hanging towers, you know, you name it, airplanes. We have this technological mastery where we seem to master nature. Homer answered that. Those of you who remember Homer. The Disney ship gets or the Fayakin ship gets turned into stone. As soon as men think they can master nature, they run into problems. Why would that be so for Homer? Do you remember? What's wrong with mastering nature in the Homeric world? Come on, what? what? Where are the gods? The gods yeah. Nature. The hubris of that, that you, we think we can master nature <laughs> when the gods are there? What happens to the Fiacan ship, because they presume to cross over the water without harm, like they can master It, it gets turned into a mountain by Poseidon. Um, So, the the image of the city from the beginning is full of paradoxes. It's in the city that man shows how self-sufficient he can be, how great he can be. It's also in the city that we see how awful he can be, the the horrible things that man can do, particularly in a spirit of anonymity. He can hide in a crown. The platonic view of the city, remember, is negative. Plato saw that laws were necessary um, to punish man, to correct him, because he believed that man in the body was depraved. He had a a dark view of the body. The Protestant world really has its origins in Plato. The Catholic world has its origins in um, Aristotle. Plato's view of the body is low. He calls it the prison house. And for him, laws were necessary to punish man because there was this bad in him. Um, Aristotle's view is different. We went over this just briefly last time. He believed that man was intrinsically good and that laws were intrinsically good. They They were meant to curb him, to help him. Plato believed that it was only in a community with good laws that man could achieve his perfection that man by nature is social, and it's only with the help of others that we can achieve our natural perfection. He's not talking about a supernatural perfection, natural, in the natural order. And that's one of the reasons that, one, one of the explanations for what happens in the uh, Renaissance, I'll come to that in a second, but it's the rediscovery of Aristotle that um, that radically changes the Middle Ages, because the Middle Ages were largely platonic. Aristotle was lost to the West. The um, Arab world preserved his writings, some of the um, Jewish and Arab writers recovered him, and it was their writings that finally brought Aristotle back to the West, and then produced all sorts of revolutions. It it, it really produced the Renaissance in truth, honestly. Changed the modern world. Um, Remember, Saint Augustine said there were two cities, and City of God, he said that there were two cities, the city of man and the city of God. The city of man was headed towards damnation, the city of God was man's ultimate end. And he said there's this um, other organization that's peregrine, a wanderer, a sojourner, a peregrine, it's the peregrine city. It's his image of the church, the the church is a community in exile from God on its way to its final end. So he believed that the only healthy community on earth was wandering in exile. When man became too comfortable, too rooted in his home, it was an indication that he was slipping towards that self-sufficiency that Enoch showed. That our real condition here is exile, we're, we're wandering. If we ever get too comfortable it's a sign that something's it's wrong. wrong. And then finally, in, in, if, if you've read the book of Revelation, you know that I should have brought it. There's that beautiful description. I think it's chapter 21 where he says, I saw a new city descending. John describing the city in, in concrete details. It's one of the most beautiful images of the city in all of literature. I saw a city descending out of heaven and goes on to describe it. And then the book of um, Revelation ends with Christ, the bridegroom, calling to his bride, the church, and all of us, going, come, come, and the bride responding, come. So the image we have ending Revelations is of a spousal love of the city, that the city by its nature is spousal. It's, it's this love shared between individuals that make up, the New Jerusalem, the city of... So we have all these various images of the city that are carried forward and that are deeply a part of our psyche and they're both going to play a role in um, in the way we look at Milton and for sure Dante. Um, We talked about the history of the church and I'm just going to briefly remind you. Remember in that sheet I gave you, the early church saw that there were two powers. One was inherent authority, the other was Um, more natural. Um, One was from God, the other earthly, temporal. Um, I gave you that passage. Remember with all the quotes from Scripture, two there are, two authorities. Um, Christ um, showed his awareness of that fact when he said, give unto Caesar what Caesar, give unto God what's God's. The church has always recognized two orders, the temporal, the city, the earth, Caesar, give unto Caesar what Caesar's given to God's what's His. The body belongs to this world, our temporal ordering. Our soul belongs to Christ, the next life. So the church always saw itself from God, from Christ, as higher than the earthly city. Um, And then I outlined those three stages. The first one I, I called the imperial papacy. That's that stage that that shows the church becomes embroiled in temporal affairs. Remember when Leo goes out and greets the the Germanic tribes and makes um, a treaty with them? Um, Constantine writes the Edict of Milan making um, Christianity official. By doing that, he indirectly made an act of establishment, which is the great problem in all of this. If the church becomes an established power that has the weight of the state behind it. So the the church is very much embroiled, involved in matters of state through that whole period. In the investiture conflict, the crisis takes ahead because up to that time, kings could um, invest bishops. But because that was so, it it made bishops directly answerable to the state. And all sorts of corruptions follow that. Marriages, selling of... um, indulgences, properties, you know, that the church owns, temporal properties. So the investiture um, controversy helped the church take one more step to sort itself out, to, to separate itself out from matters of state. That second phase was the phase of the decretals where all the popes were lawyers, they had to be to learn to deal with these questions of justice in two separate orders. And then the third stage, if you remember, is, um, I don't know what I called it, the advent of Aristotle. That's when Aristotle is recovered in the West. It, it leads, it, it accounts for what St. Thomas does. And that's a huge crisis in the church. He and Bonaventure go at it because Bonaventure was Platonist, um, Thomas's Aristotelian. What Aristotle makes clear is that reason is inherently good, laws are inherently good, man can reach a a good end here in the temporal order on his own. And it was his influence that led to the founding of those commercial republics. Remember, we talked about that, those of you who who did the Dante. Because up until that time, the church, the communities, either aligned themselves with the emperor or the pope. And you know from Dante (laughs) that families from both sides of that conflict were killing each other. So we think things are bad today? I'm not kidding. They were killing each other. How could they not? Because their whole lives were either invested in the emperor or the pope. These new commercial regimes were produced that were free of either power, which, which meant man could choose more freely where his religion wasn't imposed on you, a political system wasn't imposed on you, in some indirect way that's already pointing to America, the separation of powers. Is that clear? Is that clear? So, Aristotle was not small and what happened was these, was that in his thinking these new communes emerged in Italy that had this extraordinary freedom. People um, were in a position to determine the destiny of their own lives, what they were going to do, things weren't imposed on them. There was this great surge of investment and initiative, art, music, new political, you know. Shakespeare writes under that influence. Shakespeare, remember the Renaissance doesn't get to England for 250 years. It's moving west slowly. Half of Shakespeare's plays were set in Italy. Why? If you read a play like, um, what's the one in France? Um, All's Well That Ends Well. Helen has to go to Italy, and when she comes back, she brings back with her a power for changing the French throne. That's Shakespeare's understanding of the importance of Italy for France, and he does that in a number of English plays. He's so clear, people don't understand this today, it just drives me nuts. Half of his plays were set in Italy because he knew that what was happening in Italy um, was a power was beginning to come into the world that would answer oppression and tyranny, you know, um, despotic kings and forms of government. So um, that's the beginning of the Renaissance. Um, That's around 1300. Thomas is writing 12 something. He's in the 13th century. Dante is just immediately after him. Now, then we touched on briefly the history of the Re- Reformation. You remember that um, the um, the Reformation thinkers um, begin writing in the 14th century. Wycliffe was one of the earliest ones. If you remember, this is this is me. I'm not a historian, but it, I've read enough to be able to say something on this, I think. When I read Wycliffe and I read Luther, I look at Luther and see a plagiarist. There's almost nothing that he wrote that wasn't already written by Wycliffe. Wycliffe is writing, and I said this before, Wycliffe was writing during the Babylonian captivity when the church had moved from Rome to France and was absolutely corrupted by wealth and luxury and and under the, under the influence of the French king. Um, that's for about 60, 70 years. When, when the papacy moves back to Rome, um, popes are elected in both um, countries. So two popes are ruling, and, and one of them was called the anti-pope. That went, on, that went on for a time too. That was one of the great schisms in the church. So lots of the reformers are are writing out of these circumstances that there's this huge corruption, massive corruption in the Catholic Church. All of these people love Christ deeply. Wycliffe loves Him. Milton loves Him. Luther loves Him. Calvin loves Him. These men define their lives by Him. There's nothing more meaningful. When they hear Scripture, they're hearing about the man they love, the God, the God-man they love, so... Um, so all of these Reformation thinkers are coming or are, are emerging at a time when the printing printing has been discovered, it's writing is widely disseminated, people are becoming more educated, more independent, thinking on their own. There's large corruption in the church, lots of people are speaking on behalf of the the poorer classes who have the incentive to turn away from the church. Because they associate the church with hierarchical powers, the despotism of kings, the peasants' revolt. Wycliffe himself said he believed the church was corrupt, that all priests should be poor, that if there were going to be a pope, he, he could not be authentic unless he were as poor as Christ and Peter. But any, any pope who didn't live that way was not an authentic pope. So you can see how politics is already beginning to enter into all of this. The, the poor w- were given an incentive to turn away from the church because they saw it as identified with corrupt hierarchical powers, kings, bishops. Um, the civil war in England begins when, when Charles... So the Reformation is underway. The Scotch are Calvinists, they're Presbyterians. The civil war in England begins, this is Milton's time now, when Charles um, takes an army um, or, or wants to impose an Anglican form of worship on the Scots, they gather an army together to resist him and they fight. Charles is defeated, um, he goes, he's set free, goes home, he gets, um, he, he, he's captured, he's set free. Parliament, which is largely Presbyterian, fight against Charles so Charles goes to war with his parliament. He goes to the Scots to try to get them, they will help him provided that if he wins he will, he will make the English rule of government Presbyterian, that is to turn away from its Anglican ways. So a second world, a second war occurs and once again Charles is defeated, this time by a man named Cromwell, Albert Cromwell who was a, a really bright man and very given to a Puritan way of life. When he defeated um, Charles that time, Charles was executed for treason and Oliver purged Parliament of all the Presbyterians because at that time the pure the more Puritan forms looked at the Presbyterians as have becoming as having become Papish, Pope-like, Catholic like. So you can see this distinction between the Catholic Anglican that that protected the Mass and the Eucharist, and the Calvinistic and lower Protestant Orders, Presbyterians, Puritans, Congregationalists, who who didn't believe in the Eucharist, who believed in more um, congregational forms of government, what we would call today limited forms of government. Well, what emerged from this, you know, is, the, is America, because the, the Puritans who are Anglican come here, they go to the Netherlands and then here, the Congregationalists come here, they're, they're basically Calvinists, and they saw the power, the authority of a community to rest in the congregation, not a hierarchy. So, we can already see the beginnings of what we know today as limited government, <coughs> in, in what's happening when the groups come here, it'll take a couple of centuries to get to that, but. Okay, that's where we were. Um, and I, I just briefly went over um, the Reformation thinkers, Wycliffe, Luther, and Calvin. And we left with me wanting to talk about the implications. What did it matter? Who cared? The question that I kept putting to you guys who cares? All these, the Islams don't, and the Jews don't, the, the Jewish people don't, but um, who cares what people believe? What difference does it make? For Christians, we all believe in Christ. And then I went over the the different um, the different beliefs of these um, the first great Reformation thinkers. I want to go over them for a minute, and instead of just um, recalling them, I'm, I'm, today I'm going to try to answer some of the questions that I put to you: Who cares and why? But before I do, any any questions? I know that that's a lot, There's a lot of history there, but any. Any questions about? If anybody wants to get some more coffee or food, there's an o- I I hope everybody understands. That's just such a superficial view. I mean, we weren't. Our our purpose here isn't history. I'm not. But I don't think we can understand this stuff without having some background of it either. So. No. Okay. I have a quick question. Yes. If you don't mind. No, Um, I don't. So Charles went to Scotland to try to impose the Anglican church on them. Was he just trying to unite, unify Scotland with England? I think that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, Uh, yeah yeah and and I think it's really, that's a really good good thought yeah it, i I don't know the history i mean I'm not a historian and i so i know it in a superficial way, but the fact that you'd put it that way is is sort of telling because um to the Anglicans, the Presbyterians would have seemed heretical, you know, and they're aligned i mean the country is a, a but up against each other um so, and if you look at it, I mean, it's a really good question, Johnny. If you look at it, um, everybody's England's been united enough. The great myth of England is that Arthur Arthur united England. That up until his time, England consisted of all these lords. Scotland was a part of it. So was Highland. I mean, they, there was a contiguity would have drawn them together, the closeness of each other. Um, but up until Arthur, all of the lords were fighting against each other so there were constant civil wars that kept the country from to, um, from coming together. That was true in Italy too, by the way, if you've read the Iliad, I mean, or the Aeneid, you remember that when Aeneas returns to Italy, that's what he finds, that there are all these lords with their different divisions, constant, constant civil wars. So one of the problems, one of the things that we see happening as we move out of that ancient world into modernity is struggling to overcome tribal divisions. We know that they're there in Africa, Siberia, or Serbia, Afghanistan, um, in all those Mideast countries you've got all these sects with different religious beliefs, ethnic backgrounds, killing each other. Um, <laughs> let me put this more dramatically, America came into existence to overcome that fundamental fact all men are created equal. We're trying to bring, that's the start Getting black Americans, Turks, Greeks, give any minority group a greater importance than it should have for the whole and we lose what we came here for. The whole purpose of America was to overcome tribal differences to come together. To somehow live with our tribal differences without letting them tear us apart because the Natural impulses for tribes to go to when the early tribes. I mean the the story. You know, these are Catholic people in um, what's that story? Not the the not the sound of music, but the the Irish. The where the couple get married. The Irish and the Italians killing each other, in the gangs. What's that famous story? That's a movie. West Side Story. West Side Story. West Side Story. West Side. West Side story. Yeah, isn't that it? West Side Story. Yeah. Well, is. sorry. <laughs> but I mean the point point's that you know you've got you've got people who are Catholic, if I remember, they're all Catholic. Yeah. It's the it's the Romeo and Juliet story. Yeah. Shakespeare knows it. That families become so vested in their blood Dante knows this, we're gonna see it when we get to Dante. Families become so vested in their bloodlines they're ready to kill each other. And and, and the, the irony of it all is a couple from both feel a love that's strong enough in them that they want to close those boundaries off to get married, and, but they're not going to get any support from their families because their families are so bigoted. Um, so that condition is universal; it existed everywhere, and I think that's partly what's going on when Henry wants to impose that. That it's it's religious and political both. As a matter of fact, one of it's, one of the ironies for me when I look at this. Um, because the reverse is going to be true when the, when the Presbyterians take over Parliament. <laughs> One of the interesting things about this period, you can't miss it, is people are using political power to impose God's will on others. Let me be direct about it. What commandment is that violating? They're using political power to impose God's will on a people. It's getting close to Islam in my mind. But what commandment is that violating? First commandment. Yeah, actually, I. Admit, but you're right. Explain it. Why do you say first, Don? Because you're using that in place of God. You're making that more important than God. Yeah, and the first call. I mean, I hadn't thought. I wasn't thinking of it, but you're right. Because the first commandment is to love God, and more than anything, um, I was thinking of the second commandment. Because the second commandment is, "Do not use the Lord's name in vain." Most people think that means don't swear. That is not what it means. To try to speak, to presume to speak for God, is a sin. that in today's political
1: arena all the time. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I mean, you know that. me. I
0: don't think I don't think things have changed. Or, I'm not surprised by the corruptions in the church. Mm-hmm. People go around today saying it's awful. We, we've become such a bad church. I don't know of a period in my reading when the church wasn't awful. One of, one of my concerns about Catholics today is Catholics walk around like they're better than other people. If the church means anything, it's a church for sinners. I mean, the closing words of the mass this morning were, um, "He didn't. The, the reading. He didn't come for the good. He came for the sinners." When you start thinking you're better than other people, something's wrong. Paul, everything behind what Paul did in his life, all of his all of his writings on the law and grace, that um, we we have. We have to have the courage to see our sins for what they are, if, we're, if we have any hope of loving other people. Because every time we think we're above it or above the law or that we have to deal with the law, we get worse. That's true of all of us, Protestant, Catholic. Um, okay. Um, why did Christ come down? Why did Christ come down? If you look back at the old world, pagan and Jewish, what we find is that the the greatest virtue of the ancient world was justice. Both Jewish and pagan, okay? If you read the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, when when Odysseus comes home, he enacts justice. He kills the suitors, kills the maids. Achilles returns to the war. He's answering a wrong. Paris should never have taken Helen. You know, Troy is destroyed. Aeneas brings something new. He he brings a justice to Rome, but he also brings a piety that's something new, but it's it's still justice. If you read Plato and the ancient pagans, writers, Plato and Aristotle for sure, the virtue par excellence for both of those men was justice. If you read the Republic, Plato says there are four virtues, four natural virtues, temperance, prudence, endurance or courage, and justice. And justice was the highest because justice involved more immediately our relations with each other. Justice means giving another person his due. For Plato, Plato, the whole argument of the Republic is how can we give another person his due? How can we be just to another person? if we don't learn to order our own souls. The tendency of people is to point fingers to blame, to criticize, to judge falsely, because there's something wrong in themselves. The whole call of Christ is the same. Plato said the the greatest concern for man was, sorry for all of you who have been through this so long, your patience amazes me. Um, the, The most important thing that we could do is mind our own business. We have, we have to order our, to, to struggle to order our own souls if we're to hope to have any ability to give another person, so long as we're self-righteous or judgmental or we have a justice to work out. And, and for him, you couldn't do it without temperance, prudence, endurance. They were so related. But the ultimate end was justice. Okay? Now, according to the old law, the mosaic, And pagan law, justice was the most important thing we could accomplish in the natural order. Um, But we know, and all the the pagan writers knew, there was still something wrong. There was still something wrong. Um, what, What we learned from the Old Testament in Christ is that under the law, according to justice, everybody's damned. Without a savior, justice will never be enough. It is the highest natural virtue we can attain, but with respect to final ends, it's never enough. If our ultimate end is transcendent with God, we're in trouble. Everybody see that? Um, what gets revealed with Christ is this, um, that our, and Milton takes this as his subject. This goes right to the heart. No, no other epic poet has dealt with it so directly as Milton. What's the subject of paradise lost? The fall of man. Um, <laughs> half of me is inclined to say, let's join them but I want to get on. Um, um, what we discover is that our original sin was against God. The pagans didn't understand this. Well, they couldn't very well. Um, Our original sin was against God, that's biblical. And there was no way for man to repay it because to repay a sin against an infinite being, if we're to give him his due, would require an infinite being. A finite being couldn't. How could man as a finite creature atone for a sin that in its magnitude was infinite? That's clear, yeah? Nobody's going to answer? Is that clear? Yes. Okay, so God faced two choices. He could either leave man damned, or he could just spare him. Now let me stop just for a second. I know this is catechetical, and I hope you guys don't mind. I know it's... Time is running out on Milton, but... uh, (laughs) What's wrong with either one of those, according to our understanding of God? Could have left us damned. Why, why? didn't he? What does it say about our God? Not merciful. Right. I mean, that, so that's an Old Testament judgmental God, damned. <coughs> why, why not the opposite? Just spare us, forgive us all. That wouldn't be just because there wouldn't be any recompense yeah. for our sin. Right. Right. Well, it, it... Oh, Jeannie, you just opened God. Yes. No. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's true. Um, it, it, would be, it would be just to a God who's not merciful. It would be an upholding of the law to damn them, to leave them there, but it would be, a, it would be an act of mercy going beyond the law. Let's say so in that sense, not just. <coughs> one, one person in the evening class said well, he could have just forgiven them. What would have been wrong if he had done the second option? What's wrong with that? If he did, what would likely happen? We just yeah. keep making the over and over. Isn't that true? We'd do it again? If we were already done it once and God lets us go... Why in the world will we not do it again? Which we do. And by the way, here is St. Thomas, and here is all the wisdom of the ancient world. The greatest task facing man is to bring those two things together. Law by itself is cruel. Mercy by itself, this is St. Thomas, is a disaster. We would call that today enabling. Constantly overlooking a sin is just inviting somebody to keep doing it. Now, which, um, which is either? To do the mean or to do either of the extremes? Isn't that true? It's much easier to be harsh or overlook something. It's much, much harder to bring those two things together. Mm. I think all of us know that. So the great challenge facing Christians is ordering our loves, bringing reason and love, law and mercy together. What did Christ do? Exactly that. So Christ chose a means, this is Aristotle, you guys, he chose a means and he did it in a way that asked us to join him, to participate in the same act. That's what we've been called to do because if we don't we slip off on both sides. We either get too harsh or we enable bringing them together much 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 harder and i would say much much riskier because it's it's harder to find our way through that we're going to get criticized both sides right people who don't see it are going to say you're too harsh you're too you know we make excuses both ways to do the to find the middle is much much harder and i think we have less help there because most people are going to fall off in either extreme what makes Christ particularly problematic I don't know what else to, is that he, be, in order to, to, to atone for our original sin, it required a God, but a God that was perfectly human, because otherwise the human nature of the sin wouldn't have been met, wouldn't have been satisfied, wouldn't have been answered. He brought, he brought into this problem of answering the law uh, an, an infinite love. He's the source of law, so he couldn't deny it. Christ said, I came to fulfill the law every iota of it. That means in its depths. And I don't think we begin to see the depths of the law. We get some sense of it in the Jewish world, the Old Testament world. But he brought an infinite sense of the law because its ultimate source was God. And he brought an infinite spirit of mercy because it's an infinite, again, an infinite God. So what he brought into our human nature was absolutely... Extraordinary, sacred, the holiness is all there, and asked us to enter into it with Him. That's our call. Um, now, this partly explains the problem with the early heresies. Arian said Christ is just a special man, He's not God. Sibelius said Christ was the Father in another mode. The church had to fight all of these off, and if you watch it, it's it's interesting that they're beginning to they're beginning to answer this question: Who is this person? And as they had to struggle with these heresies, they it, it got clear and clear and clear that he was fully man, fully God, complete in himself. He didn't just enter a body that was convenient for him; he had to become a human person to make that atonement real, because otherwise he couldn't represent all men. I hope that's clear. That's why the Eucharist is so important because in the Eucharist the transformation has to be complete. It's fully there. Luther's idea was in consubstantiation and so is Wycliffe's. That the hope, that the bread and wine remain bread and wine and for Luther Christ entered it without changing it. That's a little bit like the early heretic saying there is this human nature God entered it for a while and left it so that that original human nature just stayed the same. It would have meant for an incomplete atonement. For that atonement to be perfect, real, he had to be completely God, completely man in a human person. Because he was God, he atoned for all sins. So when the issues of the Eucharist came up, it came up in some sense looking back to those old heresies. What was at issue is whether what was really present was God or not. And whether a transformation took place that was complete. Because otherwise it's a flawed transformation. It's it's a flawed understanding of Christ. Now uh, my question last week was who cares if you're Jewish or Islamic or Christian. This problem has been on my mind for years and years and years the older I've gotten because I can't look around in the world without seeing um, how hard it is for people to change their beliefs. If you've been raised Islamic, you're, you're not going to give up that belief, you believe that with everything in you. If you've been raised Jewish, conversions take place all the time, but you know how deep-seated these terrorists do what they do, believing that they're right. I mean, the beliefs are that deep. I, I don't want to get into this lot, but let me just touch on a couple of things. To, if you, if you will just, if you can allow that. One of the difficulties with Islam is that um, the is, Islam doesn't recognize Christ as, as God. They don't recognize the Trinity. So the, the whole idea of God, of, an intima, of shared intimacies between persons, that, that Godhead is social, this is crucial. According to our belief, there's a trinity, and what defines them is a mutual indwelling and a mutual sharing of loves. So Godhead is social, for God to make man in his nature means what? He cannot be private, by his very nature he's social, he carries the trinity in him. We were, we were meant to love and be loved. Okay? But Islam denies that, there's no trinity, Christ is not a God, he's a prophet. Moreover, their law, because the law is a defining aspect of their life um, is largely defined by God, so they don't make the distinction between the divine order and the humans that the West does. When a man commits a law in Islam, there's, there can be a severity to it that to us would be cruel. So if a man stole something, you could cut off his hand because you're violating God's law. So this idea, give to God and give to Caesar, is not there. We we make that separation, that distinction. The, the laws are modified according. But in the West, at least under Christianity, there's this infinite mercy, and a and a subtle grading off of the laws according to which realm, you know. Um, under Judaism, Judaism is defined by the law too. Islam is a is a is an outgrowth of Judaism. If you look at the tree. Ishmael who's the founder I mean the, the the ultimate source of Muhammad comes from the Jewish line what defines both people is the law one of the things that you can say about the law if it defines the people is exactly what we said a while ago if people live under the law they're going to be touchy people are always going to fail always nobody can live up to the law that's why Christ came which means if you live under the law let's put in our own personal lives, if that law becomes more important and merciful we're always going to be critical of people condemning them, finding a wrong they're always going to wrong us. If that's true, I think it is, Judaism and Islam will always be at war. They will never set, there will always be something to find wrong. The nature of mm-hmm. laws, you will always be aware of some wrong. They both believe in mercy but neither one of them Uh, believes in a God who brought an infinite mercy to fulfill that law. That's absent, which makes the law more severe, more demanding, more rigorous. In the Christian world, you've got um, all, all, all people believing in Christ. Who cares then? They all believe in Christ. Calvin was absolutely dedicated to Christ. So was Luther, so was Wycliffe. What's the difference? Let me just offer a couple of brief. Here were some of the major beliefs of the Reformation thinkers. For the Reformation thinkers the consequences of the fall were complete. Man was depraved. Is that so for the Catholic? No. The Catholic believes that the the consequences of the fall was a wound. The Catholic believes man, God's essence, can't be corrupted. What what God made in essence, since was, we're talking about in essence, cannot be corrupted. It can be wounded. Man made God, or er, God made man, good. He's in essence good. He suffers from a horrible wound. We call that wound concupiscence. And if any. Uh, I mean, if any of you have struggled with any close to addictions, um, I'm assuming all of us know them, I know I do. Um, t- struggling to answer sins in our character, you know how hard it is. I mean, um, one of the amazing things that I discovered as I got older was I mean, I was a pretty self reliant kid. It's a quality in my character that scares me sometimes. When I set my mind to do something, I could do it well. I mean, I just did. I love sports. I practiced the sport, I got really good at it. Um, as, I grew, as I grew on in life and after the conversion, the, the one thing that struck me is, no matter how hard I tried to get rid of my sins, and <laughs> kept coming back, um, it's just hard, hard to overcome our sins. That's how great they are. <laughs> so I believe that the depth of our wound is pretty severe. The Protestant thinkers, to a person, believed in man's depravity. That the the consequence of the fall was depravity. All corrupt. All. Um, That man had no free will. That the only way he could exercise free will was through the grace of God, through an act of faith. Dante's going to show us something different. Dante's going to believe, the Catholic Church believes, we have free will. It's wounded. It's wounded. We have enough free will and we have enough goodness in us that we can do good here on earth. You can be an atheist and be a virtuous man. Plato and Aristotle were virtuous pagans. You're going to see this and they were virtuous men. Really good men. Lots better than lots of Christians, I would say. Um, but no matter how good they were, how virtuous they were, their virtue could never merit heaven because that's a supernatural grace. So, virtue is possible here in the natural order, but it would never be enough to get us to heaven. That can't happen without God's help, not without faith, not without love. Um, Consequence fall complete. They believe that the Pope had no authority and that they couldn't find an authority for it in scripture. The, the ultimate authority for their defining their life, directing their life, was the Bible, that it was infallible in its authority. Um, the justification by faith, men were saved by faith, and that was an act given by the Spirit. And they all had fundamental, fundamentally different ideas of the Eucharist. All of them denied it in its orthodox understanding. Um, Wycliffe believed, Wycliffe believed that the Eucharist didn't take place, he believed that Christ was in heaven, he returned locally, he was still there, that if anything happened in in an offering, it was that by an act of faith, um, a man believed that he was present and that faith made him present and he could participate in it. Luther, Calvin believed in it not at all, he, he believed that no mass was necessary, that the mass in fact was um, sacrilegious, sacrilegious. He believed that all masses should take the form of a ministry of the word, that the role of a preacher was to profess the word, and that it was the faith of a congregation that vested those words with life. So the sacrament is done away with in Calvin, completely. For, for all of these men, certainly Luther and Calvin, they believed in only two sacraments, baptism and the Eucharist, and for both of them, they were, or all three, they were signs, not efficacious acts. For the Catholic, they're efficacious. They, they are an enactment of the miracles that went on when Christ was present to perform them. Um, So a fundamental difference is with respect to the um, Eucharist and holy orders. According to most of the reformers, um, there there was no holy order, no sacerdotal order, order. there weren't priests. Um, The laying on of hands, the apostolic succession, the power that's vested in priests was another form of something sacrilegious. The priests were chosen by the congregation. Um, since the mass was not a, an enactment of a holy act um, it didn't need a priest a minister would be sufficient because what takes place is the ministry of the word the giving of the words so in one sense what happens with certainly with the lower churches the lower Protestant churches the higher Anglican and Episcopal still retain the mass and the Eucharist And I've got a comment on that in a second but the lower ones don't um, Where was I going? Um, Oh, what we see is a a continuity with the um, rabbinic tradition. If you go back to the Old Testament temple, you've got rabbis interpreting scripture. That's their fundamental fiction, I mean, position, functions, right? Um, When you go forward in the Catholic tradition through the whole Middle Ages until the Reformation, the priest is performing a sacrifice. Assisting in a sacrament. He's instrumental in making it real. With the Reformation and the disappearance of the Mass, the sacrament, you've got a minister interpreting the Bible, inspiring people to the Word, to live the Word by faith. So fundamental issues are at stake. Fundamental changes. Now, what are some of the implications of this? Let me just touch on a couple um, Let me just touch on a couple. Two of the fundamental beliefs of the Reformation thinkers were sola scripture, sola fide. Scripture only, that's all we need. We don't need a Pope um, and faith. We don't need love or that faith is an assurance of our being with Christ, our salvation. What are the difficulties with this? If scripture is... Wait, first of all, I think you all know, or you know all, I think you all know, that you know that tradition preceded scripture. That the traditions were already underway before scripture was written. Okay? The, 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 now, that needs. I mean, this is, this is not a time for subtle qualifications, but you know that there was a tradition underway all back to the covenants in the Old Testament, carried forward and the blood sacrifice was a major part of them. The the Jews would have been horrified when Christ said, unless you eat of my body, unless you, you know, you you remember, if you know the biblical scripture, you know that a lot of the apostles who are Jewish leave in that moment. They're so horrified that he would say something like that. But that tradition is underway before even Christ comes. What happens is that it gets subtly changed. A different spirit is brought to it, but the traditions continue. The major change in that is the Eucharist. Paul speaks to it it in his letters. But that tradition is underway, so people were aware of it in whatever they were doing before the Gospels were written, and then certainly um, they had a role in the Gospels, and the Gospels had a role in how that people would proceed. Um, But one of the things that seems to me we, we should be thinking seriously about is, each of the Reformation thinkers believed in the essential infallible teachings of the Bible. That was their source of authority. The irony is that every one of them believed different things. If the Bible is truth, it's impossible to come out of that situation without saying truth is relative. You can make it what you want. Because all of them disagreed. So either either there is no single truth, and truth is relative, or there's something wrong going on here. Because on basic fundamental truths, they disagreed, and continue to do that today. Um, our daughter-in-law was, was raised in um, a Calvinistic family, and just by coincidence, when I had my knee operation, the guy who did the, the rehab with me, whom I dearly loved, dearly loved, I didn't, we didn't know it at the time, but he was a part of the congregation, our daughter-in-law's parents were in, and he was describing a situation when they broke off. I don't know what the issue was, but they obviously disagreed and broke off and formed another church. And we've seen that happen over and over and over again. There's this constant fragmenting, breaking down. If um, either truth is relative, it can mean whatever people want, or there's something wrong. If there is only one truth, Christ says, I'm the truth, the way, and the light, and... Um, then we've got a difficulty how can those true either Christ is in the Eucharist or isn't either he's truly present or not but not both can be true okay the second is and this is in some ways more troubling um, if if solely fide is the basis of our relationship with God, with Christ. Um, We've got another difficulty and it's just as it's just as large, in some ways maybe even larger. Um, Faith by itself is subjective. Always. There's no way to validate it. There's no way to do it justice. If it's a supernatural experience, it can take Radically different forms from one person to another. It's absolutely private. That was the nature of Luther's criticism of the church. He said, "The most important thing in our relationship with Christ is the private relationship, the personal relationship we have with Him." He he believed that there should not be a hierarchy of priests, that that should be gotten out of the way because it was an interference. It was an interference of man's private personal relationship with God. and they also believe that the authority in the church was vested in the congregation right it was the it was the faith of the congregation that made an act real if it was going to take place at all if there were any authority for choosing a minister it would be from the congregation well what happens in the congregation if some of the people believe in homosexuality or homosexual marriage or or women as priests or whatever anybody would think um, in the here's here's what here's the difficulty here, for a Catholic, and I want to I'm going to get to a passage in a minute. I want to read this from the Bible because it's, it goes so much to what we're talking about. What's present in the Eucharist is the objective existence of Christ. He is objectively there. If you make it a matter of faith, then a person's everything that we see about Christ depends on him whether he sees it or not. So the whole objective reality of something is removed. It's made contingent on whatever a person wants to believe or not, and we know that they all believe something different. So, one of the dangers to this is that because faith is um, subjective, there's no way to validate it, if you add to that that man's depraved, that a person defining his life in terms of faith who doesn't have the assistance of nature is absolutely isolated. Faith beca- he, be- he becomes the arbiter of everything that happens in his life because he has no reference to, he has no reference to nature and nature is depraved. I want to go back to this in Hamlet in a minute because I talked about that before. So um, the, the objective truth of Christ is compromised and and one of the ironies of making the Bible the source of everything is that people read it differently. We all know that. What you get out of it is going to depend on how you read it and if you're, I think if most of us are truthful about our readings and things we realize as we go through life, that very often we don't read very well. We make mistakes in reading all the time. So um, those are just some of the difficulties that entered the modern world. That, that people can believe whatever they want, um and there's a danger that faith can isolate a person because he has no other reference no other way of relating to the world except a way that's personal to him alone. And remember that I said I mean something not to forget is according to the fundamental belief of our church we believe in a trinity that Christ was one of the persons who came down that if God made us in his image we are trinitarian to our core we're called to love and be loved, that there's something wrong if we don't. We're meant to be in relationship. If we're isolated, we're losing something of actually our divine nature with God. So those are some of the um, some of the things to keep in mind. Wait, and I want to say, to to Milton's credit, because we're going to Milton shortly, we may... I I don't think we're going to start him today, but... um, but hold on here, Milton started out, his grandfather was Catholic. His son, Milton's father, was Anglican. Milton's grandfather dissociated himself from his son when he converted, become an Anglican. When Milton started, he was Anglican. He, he, I mean, everybody thought, he thought growing up that he would be, he would go to orders. That's what men did in that time. Um, and we know from his, from his fervor how absolutely dedicated he was to Christ. Um, He started out as an Anglican. He came to hate Anglicanism because he associated with the Catholic Church. Um, I think properly. He identified with the Presbyterian cause because he believed that it was absolutely essential that no government could oppose a religious belief on man. It's one of the reasons he hated the Anglican Church. He supported the Presbyterians because their whole congregational form of governance was against that. It was more more democratic. I mean, people could believe what they want. We, I mean, eventually found that that's not true because everybody said the Presbyterians became as dogmatic as the Catholics because you had to believe their way or get out. I mean, every one of the Reformation groups took the same position. If you were a Calvin and didn't believe in Calvin, you were asked to leave. You had to sign off on that or go. So every church was as dogmatic about its beliefs as the church they all rebelled against. Milton identified himself with the Presbyterian cause. When the Presbyterians came into government, just before Cromwell, he hated them because they were imposing beliefs on the rest of the people, the Puritans, um, the Congregationalists. So he dissociated himself from the Puritans. At the end of his life, he associated himself with no established religion because he believed all established religions, by virtue of their establishment, were corrupt. He was a man unto himself, and it seems to me one of the one of the reasons that people admire his greatness is for his courage in resisting oppression, censorship, a government closing down. Those are some of the great strengths that he brought to his work. Um, here, I want to read this to you and and then give the example of... Well, wait, here, let me tell you, let me, to go back to the... um, I want to end with this scripture reading from um, dealing with Peter and Christ, but before I do, I want to remind you of that thing from Hamlet. Um, This thing about privacy and private revelations and their importance. Um, Those of you who've done... Hamlet will remember this. Those of you who have not... mm, Hamlet's a story about a young prince who comes home because his father's just been killed and his uncle has taken the crown and shortly after he arrives, he's upset with his mother because it's too short a time for the marriage that he makes, He, he really is angry at his mother and I think that's an understatement, but he can't do anything about it, he comes home and his uncle's king, shortly after he arrives he's told that something strange is going on in the ramparts and he goes up with his friend Horatio And he learns that a ghost has been stalking the Castle Ramparts and asking, looking for him. Hamlet goes to the ghost, it's the ghost of his father. The ghost of his father comes to him and says, my brother killed me. It's the Cain Abel story, my brother killed me, avenge my death, avenge my death. Nobody hears that, that's a private revelation. And interestingly, it's a private revelation from the semi-quasi-natural order. That ghost has not been freed yet because he wasn't confessed. It's a Catholic, we're in a Catholic world. He wasn't confessed. Hamlet comes away from that not knowing what to do because he knows that ghosts can be evil, that an evil spirit could be tempting him. So, and yet he takes it seriously because it's his father's, I mean, to all appearances, it was his father. He puts on a mousetrap. He's a sci- he's a modern scientist. This is very modern play. Absolutely modern, absolutely modern. He puts on a play to test it out. It's called the mousetrap play and he to, to watch the king's reaction and he reenacts the murder scene. When the king, current king sees that, he's shocked because it's like he knows somebody knows what he did. The king gets up and walks out and Hamlet's confirmed in his belief. He knows that the ghost was good. Now remember, those of you who've been, you all know what a taking of the auspices is. We've done this before. In the ancient world, when an omen was given, when something prophetic, some strange thing happened that had the quality of a revelation to it, the taking of the auspices, the auspices, the strange things, to to ensure that what they they experienced wasn't a, a hallucination, that they weren't mad, because you know the religious sensibility can believe lots of things. We all know that. People make all these claims, and sometimes you have to shake your head and wonder. It's so, hard, it's so private. We don't, it's hard to confirm. You have to confirm that moment. So they look for a confirmation. It happens in every one of our epics, every single one of our epics that we read. In, in, just to take an example, in the Odyssey, Odysseus returns home. On the night before the battle, he hears this woman cry out, Oh, if they would only do this. You know, um, And then um, Odysseus, it's like a prophecy, there's a sign, I think thunder or Zeus or something, that confirms it and he knows it. If, if you look at Sophocles or Aeschylus in their plays, somebody will have a strange moment and they'll look for a confirmation to know whether or not they can trust it. Um, Hamlet doesn't know. He tests it out and on the basis of that he believes his, the ghost was right, in the very next scene, he sees Claudius, his uncle, at prayer. He's going to kill him, and then he says no, because doing that when he's at prayer will send him to heaven. That's a fine way to avenge my dad. He wants to get him when he's doing something damnable. And I, those of you who are here know, people read past that. If there's a dangerous moment that Hamlet faces in that play, it's at that moment because he wants to damn a man. It's the second Amendment, I mean, second commandment. It's not in man's power to send man to his ultimate end. That's God's. That's a serious moment for Hamlet. Later, he kills a man thinking it's Claudius, and then he's sent overseas. The king sends overseas to get him out of the way because he's causing trouble. On the sea voyage over, he's overcome with this misgiving in his heart. He he comes home and he's talking with Horatio and he's describing what happens, and he says to Horatio, I had this misgiving in my heart and I went below deck. On the basis of that misgiving, I opened up this commission. The two men, who who were his friends, who were taking him there, um, had this commission. He opened up the commission and, and he finds in the commission a warrant for his death. The king is sending him off to be killed and his two friends know it. So he substitutes their names for his and then he has to seal it again you know with the with wax seal and horatius says how could you do that and hamlet's response was even there heaven was ordinate it was it was standing by to help me in this situation even even then was heaven ordinary and then he has this line where he says refuse them how we we make all these mistakes we make these plans but somehow god always comes in to help and and it's at that moment just then that he's going to go into a sword fight that's a private revelation and something interesting happens then because hamlet's response when horatio he's going to go into the sword fight and horatio says shall i tell them to wait and he says no if it's going to happen it's going to happen if it's not going to happen it's not going to happen let be the readiness is all." And he goes in to fight and kills the king and is killed himself. There's two private revelations in that story and, and you all know, Hamlet's from where? Wittenberg. That's where he went to school. He's coming back from Wittenberg. Shakespeare knows exactly what's... and the opening line of the play, opening line of the play, Who's there? Now think about the... Who's there? with the ghost, his father. Who's there? Hamlet has a figure. Are you all following me? Who's there? Who's the ghost? Does he know? At the end when he has this private revelation, who's there? Who's the king? Is is he who he purports to be? Who's Peter? I'm going to come to this in a minute. Who's there? Opening line. Who's Hamlet? Everybody misunderstands him. Can anybody see what's going on inside that man's soul? Absolutely not. He's tortured because he has to act on the basis of his private revelation, he's got to kill the king, it's a regicide, which by the way Milton defended, it's a regicide. He kills the king and people say, why'd you do that? He says, because the ghost of my father told me so, private revelation. How can that be a basis for doing anything in the political world? He's absolutely estranged. I hope everybody's following me, am I going too fast? He's absolutely estranged, he can't act. That private revelation privatizes everything he does. Watch what happens at the end, I should have brought the book, Um, I felt this misgiving in my heart and even there heaven was And then he describes this providence that's working in the world, if you'll you'll watch over the fall of a sparrow, how will you not watch over me? There's nobody in the world that Hamlet could have trusted through four-fifths of that play, and then he has that revelation, private revelation, crossing the sea and he, for the first moment, for the first time in his life, he trusts. If God watches out for the sparrow, he will watch out for me. If it's to be now, it will be. If it's not to be, it will not be. The readiness, let be, the readiness is all. He's absolutely trusting in a God. The first one's from his father. In a sense, it's from the natural realm, the father still has not left, he's leaving him with a vengeance problem. The second one is from God. Who can prove it? Who can see it? When I read critics on this today, critics read right past that stuff. They don't even see it. And and yet it's fundamental. The first one gave him his quest, the second one radically changes the way he stands in it. So God is looking out. Who's there? Do we read well? how well do we read? So these are some of the fundamental problems that are introduced into the modern world that we still live with today. If we look at them in in a strange way, they they haven't changed. I want to end with this. This is from scripture on this question of Peter and his place whether whether or not because the typical reading of the Reformation thinkers is there's no basis in scripture for for a pope. Nobody goes. Christ didn't say you're pope. <clears throat> There's no evidence for that. <coughs> this is in that passage. Um, I think it's in Matthew 16. Christ comes to the people or the disciples, and he says, "Who do the people say I am?" I think this is Matthew 16. You all remember that, right? Who do people say I am? Um, and. and then he turns to the disciples and they don't answer and then he turns to Peter and um, Peter says you are Messiah the Son of the Living God and Christ turns to him and says blessed are you Simon son of Jonah for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but by Heavenly Father and so I say to you you are Peter upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of the netherworld shall not prevail against it. The gates of the netherworld shall not prevail. Most people read that as they won't succeed in their attack against us. The gates of hell shall not prevail against us. They won't succeed in their attack against us. I think it's more proper to read as they can't resist us. They will not prevail against us. The gates of hell will not stop us. (coughs) From moving forward, evil will not stop us. It's in this passage that Christ gives Peter the keys. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. The, but the the interesting about this moment that I want to just stop. Who's there? Who's there? This stunned me the other day when I, I don't think I'd ever seen this so clearly. But reading all this stuff, just I mean, it, this this is what happens when I start teaching. I feel sorry for you guys sometimes, what what you must have to deal with. Um, I'd never read it this way before and it just jumped out at me and hit me over the head. This is the taking of the auspices moment. Peter's the first one to recognize Christ. This is the the founding of the church. I'm not exaggerating, I mean, I may be, uh, the church may call me out on this, I don't know, but I believe this to my depths. Peter is the first one to see this. Who do they say I am? Nobody else could answer it. to the auspices, an omen. Who confirms it? God. Christ says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my heavenly Father. And so I say, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. What he's saying is two things are gonna coincide going forward. Peter the rock and his church the authority of the Holy Spirit because what happens to Peter in that moment is he's vested with the Holy Spirit right on this rock Christ confirms it this didn't come from you now just for a moment take up the question who's there if any of the disciples are looking at Peter who what do they see Is he any different than he was 10 minutes earlier or the Peter that he'd known five days before or a month before? To their eyes, but what we're seeing, I mean, if we're reading, I think properly, I don't think I'm reading in here, is that the Holy Spirit has vested something in him, it's enough that he sees Christ and Christ gives him the keys. And this is while Christ knows, God, this is where he gets, he's going to betray him That the weakness of the church is already there in this man that he's giving the keys to. But something just happened in this moment, absolutely private. Who saw it? It's in the Bible. It's there. I'm not making this up. Something was given to Peter, and it was on that rock that the church would be built. That's its foundation. I look at this now in a way that I'd never... It's the founding of a church. Something's given to Peter in that moment, the keys, this knowledge of Christ who he is that nobody else has, and the church will be built on that. And it's confirmed by Christ, by God. So when you think about taking the auspices moments, you know that if something happens, then you have to confirm it. Who confirms this? Christ. So this question of who's there, how do we read? Those of you who've been with me for a long time, you know that I've been saying now for every, almost every work we've read, one of the major themes is reading. Um, when we start next week with Milton, one of the first questions I'm going to ask, I'm going to read through some passages just to get it going. So we'll start then. How well does Satan read? How well does he use his mind? How, well does, he, what is, how does he understand the world around him? What's just happened? How does he understand it? Um, Let me stop. Um, I'm always aiming for a from 9:15 to 11:15, and it's 11.10. A, a miracle just happened. <laughs> not yet. <but> not yet. <laughs> Sue, Sue No. I don't even want to look at her because she knows uh, something miraculous. And you all missed it, or some of you did, not some of you didn't. Um, anyway, let's stop. Unless unless anybody has any questions that you want to take a minute. I I really I'm really going to work hard at holding myself to that time. So I know there's a lot here and it's all twisted and tortured. There's so much going on and it's still with us. This is our, the, this is, if you look at what happens in the, in the Civil Wars in, in England, the, the Puritans and the congregationists are already on their way to the Netherlands and to America. Uh, so America is being founded as this has taken place. And what's gonna come out of these battles is a, is a sense of limited government. It's got to answer the oppressions of a king. So it's leading directly, or indirectly, to the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution. America is emerging out of this. And what's going on in this Reformation turmoil is, is going to lead to us. And it's carried forward. So the Protestant Reformation, the, America is a Protestant world. The Catholic world is here, you know, we're still dealing with the same turmoil. Um, so, so much of what we're looking at right now so directly is present in our world. I just, I look at it and I'm stunned by it all. So, it's confusing, it's complicated, but it's also us. Sorry, Carl, did you have something? Where, what should we be preparing for for next week? Milton, read, read books one and two. One. No, okay. no, I, we will just, next week we'll get through books one and two, and, and from that time forward I'm going to, background stuff is always hard for me, it's just there's so much going on and I want to try to, works of literature don't come out of a vacuum, you know, they, and, and particularly with something like Paradise Lost, it speaks so directly to our art world, They're, the religious beliefs are so central to it that I didn't want to treat it superficially so. But we do, Milton. We start Milton next week. Here's one of the things I'm going to ask all of you, and this is going to be tough. Um, this is partly a confession on my part. I really would like you all to hear this. If you could, I know I'm stretching my limit time right now, but I, I'm saying I'm saying this really seriously. If If any of you, I mean, those of you who have been doing this with me for a couple of years know how seriously I take works of literature and reading them well. I don't like, I don't like what modern teachers are doing with literature because so often they start with an agenda and they read it. Um, So they're not reading what's there, they're twisting it to make it fit their theories. Freudian, Marxist, feminist, gender, you name it. There are all these political agendas and They see through those lenses, and I believe it's really important to learn to see what's there in front of us. Um, Milton and Dante are, in my mind, the the two greatest epics on the threshold of modernity. Dante's before him, but I still see him as a modern. I see Dante as a modern in ways that I don't Milton. I'll, I'll make that clear later, but in any case, because this isn't literature's prophecy, this is catechetical, Protestant, Catholic. Um, I, I want to be really careful, uh, I want to read Milton as Milton, but one of the questions in my mind, because I've never done it quite this way, when you read the poem, are there implications with respect to these larger questions? You know? Is there, is there something that, that is Protestant, even if it's very veiled? I, I, I want to be so careful because I don't want to make claims along those lines that I can. I want to read the poem as a poem. Um, but but it is a pro, it's, the, it's a product of a Protestant mind. Dante's the, so clearly the Protestant of a Catholic mind. What do we learn? We have to read what's there. We cannot make it something it's not. Do we discover anything And it, because my belief, a lot of it, is going to be subtle. And what I'm going to be on guard with, certainly with myself, is I do not want to take something subtle and treat it like it's blown up or make more of it than I can to prove a point. I don't want to do that. But I don't want to miss something. So it's going to take some real care to read this. You know, all I can say is, I mean, I'm encouraging you all to take care and, and just letting you know, that's a very, very serious concern. I've talked with Suzanne about it, I mean, I'm just, you'll see in the, in fact, let me give you, let me give you just one thing here in the opening. It'll be interesting to hear what you say when we meet on next Friday. In chapter one, Milton's gonna show Satan crying, and he's gonna say farewell in this very endearing way. Can a demon, can a demon who's turned from God cry? I don't want to answer that now because there's lots of things that that Milton does to make it clear that this is a demon who turned from God who turned from all goodness who went to war with him and lost because that's how it begins he's thrown out of heaven can he cry? Is there a certain? Ma- Milton makes it clear this is a demon this is the this is the greatest demon He's superior to all the other demons. If you've started reading, you know that. Um, He manipulates them. He makes it clear what he wants to do. He he wants to destroy, and he wants to use guile to destroy this new world, to keep opposing God. Um, He cries, and when we get to paradise, he's going to look at paradise in wonder. He will look at Eve and be knocked over by her. Are there ways in which Milton humanizes Satan? Just be aware. What do we make of that? What do we do with that? Remember, he's writing an epic in an epic tradition, and the epic hero's always been a great hero. Are there heroic qualities? Are there qualities in him that we admire? How how are we to read Satan? How are we to understand this? I'll just leave those as sort of opening questions on what we do. But we start, Milton, sorry for the length of this, but I had to do it, so. (laughs)